Hello and welcome to Books and Badgers. I'm your host, Colin, and with me, as always, is Trevor. Trevor, how are you doing? I'm doing great. We are in Season 4. This is Episode 3, and we are talking about Mariel of Redwall, Book 3, The Sound of a Bell. I can't believe... We just said this kind of off mic. I can't believe we're getting close to the end of Season 4. It's incredible to, to think about. Yeah, I don't know where time has gone (laughs) yeah yeah it goes real fast that's for sure um we have a lot of thoughts about this book three a sound of a bell um but before we get into that because we got a lot to cover with that you know i gotta ask you is there anything cool you've been reading yeah so for the last week i have been reading chain gang all stars by nana kwame ajibrenya he's uh this really interesting writer who hit the New York Times bestseller list with his first collection called Friday Black. And this new book was, I think it was nominated for a National Book Award. Um, it's hard to explain kind of what it is, except that I I feel like it's like, what if The Running Man were about the new Jim Crow? Uh, it's kind of this gladiator style combat between incarcerated peoples and they kill each other for entertainment. And it, it acts as this really big kind of dynamic swing at trying to open up a discussion about our carceral system in general. I had the pleasure of meeting him uh, last night. Actually, I went to a, a reading slash uh, book event in Bentonville. And uh, he talked a lot about the book and and it was really cool to hear some of his thoughts about uh, crafting the book and some of the things he was most concerned about. Uh, and then, of course, I got my book signed by him. It was a really great experience. That's awesome. What a, what a cool opportunity. Yeah, I was really surprised that the library up here decided that they were going to invite him to come. And I'm even more surprised that he came. (laughs) So it was, it was just a a really, really cool event. And I've really had a blast reading the book. It's a fantastic book, very much fits into the kind of sci-fi slash speculative fiction that I personally love. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's just been an, an exceptional experience all around. That's awesome. That's really cool. Well, speaking of exceptional books all the way around, I got some things to say that about this uh, this book three. Are we ready to get into it? Yeah, let's go ahead. Let's do it. Book 3, The Sound of a Bell, kicks off with Chapter 27. Colonel Clary and the Long Patrol enter Redwall and immediately begin addressing the issue of the Fire Slingers. Clary culls some yew poles from the Mossflower Woods outside the Abbey and fashions together some longbows for the Abbey defense. The longbows open up an entirely new range for defense, 
and clearly demonstrates their utility to devastating effect on Greypatch's forces. Greypatch scrambles to get out of range, effectively ending his fire-slinging assault. Oh man, we are starting this book three off with some heat here with these longbows. This was such a really cool moment that I feel like pays off really well um, with Jake's kind of writing earlier, talking about how I think it's, um, uh, is it Clug? I forget the uh, the otter's name. That uh, is unable flag. to, oh, sorry, it's Flag. Yeah, <laughs> Clug, I don't know where I got that from. That's probably a rat's name that I'm throwing in there. Um, Flag is uh, is unable to get the range needed. And so this is so cool to see Clary kind of come in uh, with the rest of the Long Patrol and show them this new weapon. And it's, to your point, devastating in its effect because we get some um, some rats that get some arrows through the throats <laughs> that are essentially pinned down from range. Um, it's highly effective, as I say in Pokemon. Uh, this was quite a way to start out book book three yeah so i i alluded to it a little bit earlier in our second episode but this is actually the chapter that i remember the most out of this entire book and i did not realize that this was the book i could have sworn in my head that this is something that basil Staghair did and when it didn't show up in a red wall and it didn't show up in Matameo, I was like, I don't honestly know where this concept came from. But I remember distinctly the hairs of the long patrol teaching the red wallers about how to construct long bows and that dramatically changing the course of an assault on red wall. So finding it in this chapter was really really fun and it brought back a wave of memories where all of a sudden i remembered pretty much the totality of book three just in an instant and um this is just one of those i think defining moments of the book there are going to be two other really big moments in book three that stand out and and that i think are what makes Mariel of Redwall such a memorable book. But this is the start of it. The long patrol coming in, shaping up defenses, and completely turning the tide of this fight against Grey Patch. Well, in chapter 28, Mariel and Danden submerge into the lobster pool, and Mariel gets to work retrieving the metal swallow. The lobster advances on the mouse duo, but quick thinking from Tarquin, saves them from serious harm. Outside the pool, Bobbo's newt friend Furl hands over the rescued swallow, and the group discovers that it has a magical ability to always point true north. With the swallow guiding them as a compass, Bobbo tells the travelers about the husk of the green fang, the whole of which is still sound and could serve as a seaworthy vessel that could take the travelers on their final leg to Terramord. Mariel and others thus leave Bobbo and Furl behind as they take to the open sea. So I have a genuine question about what we learn here. Do compasses not exist in <laughs> Redwall? Because a swallow is essentially do. a compass, right? Right, but it isn't just any 
compass because you know a compass usually works with a magnetized needle that's kind of resting on uh, a bed of water typically um, that's that's kind of how it normally works now there are different kinds of compasses now um, but that's how a lot of those older compasses kind of worked um, this is seemingly some kind of a magnetized metal but it doesn't it works as a compass but it doesn't seem to have any of the other characteristics of like what we would think of a scientific compass it's like a magical piece of metal and i think that this is one of the stranger incorporations into kind of the lore of redwall because we know that there's like a magic metal that was used to forge rat death um but this seems to be something entirely different and its origins are also pretty obscure. My question is, did a compass, how does this function any differently than a compass does? <laughs> because it essentially is doing what a compass does, which is to point north. So um, I don't know that it, I don't know that it does function any differently. <laughs> I mean, it's just a compass. It's just, it, but it's like a magical metal swallow, you know, which gives it a, greater air of mysticism i suppose yeah i was really puzzled by this whole this whole inclusion i think the um the way that they give it get it's kind of clever uh clever how um mariel's fighting underwater she wields martin's sword uh rat death and is um uh trying to fight the lobster um because dandon is uh, attacked and he's kind of in this um cloud of dust which obscures the swallow um, and then they're pulled up and it's revealed that um, Furl was able to kind of sneak in and get it. Um, so I really like how this uh, <laughs> altercation kind of uh, resolves. Like I did think that that was pretty clever. But then once they actually get the item, I was just kind of thinking this seemed dumb if they already had a compass. <laughs> like if they're already <laughs> sailing based off of a compass and going north, what did this accomplish? Because it doesn't point to Terramort, right? It's just pointing north, and they know to go west of that. So, um, very, very strange. But I mean, they got <laughs> they got this quest item, so I guess it's more about the friends we make along the way. Um, yeah. To be fair, they don't have any compasses. Um, like, there's no such thing as a compass in in Mossflower, apparently. So this particular bird that always points true north i mean that that's valuable i can i can buy that you know you need a mystical compass in order to lead you because you don't you know none of these folk are seafaring folk um it it makes sense to me in a way um but i also just think like okay magic metal that acts as a compass sure why not <laughs> there are sillier things in this book well, in chapter 29, with the fire slingers cowed, the Abbey dwellers enjoy a reprieve and spend it celebrating. Clary and his hares take over defense of the Abbey, posting up a constant guard against Greypatch. Still, Mother Mellis is dissatisfied with waiting the rats out and implores Clary and company to stage a rescue operation to start freeing the ore slaves. The Long Patrol thus sets out on a mission to begin a gradual liberation of Grey Patch's captives. 
In their first outing, Clary and the Hares convince Grey Patch's horde into attacking one another, acting as a cover for time to set loose a few slaves. I don't really have many notes on this chapter. Um, it's some more kind of hair shenanigans that we've seen uh, seen before. Um, the only thing that kind of stood out to me was Mother Mellis and her um, her uh, concern for the slaves um, really kind of pays off a lot later. And we see a little bit more conversation that happens with that down the road. Um, but at this this particular point, I really don't have much to contribute to this chapter. Yeah, the thing that I really liked about it was that, again, we see that the hares have a particular skill set that is developed over the course of working in the long patrol. And I think that that kind of military strategy is just very interesting. It starts to explain a lot of the way that hares kind of operate in this world. We've seen this happen before. This is nothing new. Um because Basil has employed this very same tactic against Clooney and Clooney's horde. But I think that it's still interesting to start looking at Clary and Time and Han Rosie as kind of the long patrol archetypes. They start to employ the stuff that we've already kind of explored with a bunch of the other hares in a kind of novel context so that we understand that, you know, this is their military operation. This is some of the way that they remain so competent. And I just really like the fact that they're able to stir up Grey Patch's forces uh, by kind of infiltrating them in a way that um, just again, kind of shows off their competence. I just love the long patrol in this book so much. Yeah, one thing that I thought was kind of interesting that did did stick out. Now that I'm thinking about it, is um, Honey Rose uh, is the one that kind of gives them away because she's laughing, and then all the rats kind of stop <laughs> and realize that they're being um, they're kind of being duped a little bit in this kind of false conversation. It's very reminiscent of. Um, what Bilbo does with the trolls in The Hobbit, you know, where he's like uh, making them kind of, or is it Gandalf that does it? I, don't, I kind of forget. Um, it's Gandalf. Making, sorry, yeah, Gandalf, where they uh, are, are thinking that something's happening to each other or one person is saying something and then they go at it with each other. Um, so the fact that she starts laughing, that kind of gives up the ruse, um, kind of plays into her character a little bit later too. Yeah, it's kind of funny how it it breaks down so quickly, um, but they still manage to make away with several slaves. And we begin to see that Clary has a pretty good idea of how they should affect this rescue operation and kind of knows like the only way that we really manage to pull this off is if they do it piecemeal, you know, bit by bit, because making a big break um, would leave, I think some of these, galley slaves pretty exposed to gray patch and we've already learned that gray patch is not incompetent um he's had a couple of turns of really bad luck but that is not to say that he's you know not capable enough i think of of really making um a pretty damaging um 
maneuver against the long patrol. You know, he he can he can lead a pretty effective campaign and Clary doesn't want to underestimate him. When well, chapter 30, one of Gabool's sea captains returns empty-handed to find Gabool out of control mad. Gabool convinced that Flaga, the captain of Rathelm, is actually Grey Patch in disguise takes Flaga to his secret treasure trove, which is actually the den of Scrablag, who we learn is Gabool's pet scorpion. Meanwhile, stranded without mast or sails, Mariel floats on the disabled Greenfang, which is suddenly struck by Sea Talon and scuttled. Dandin and Dury are taken aboard the rat ship, leaving Mariel and Tarquin lost at sea. Just as they both think they might succumb to the sea's cold depths, they are hoisted aboard the recently commandeered Waveblade, captained by none other than Ronblade Widestripe. Together, they cut a course for Terramord. Man, lots is revealed in this chapter. First, we figure out who uh, Scrawlblag is. Now, I gotta ask the question, knowing that Scrawblag is actually a scorpion. Do we stick by your prediction that this is a shadow trope? Do we stick with that? Oh, this is definitely the shadow trope. If you think about Scrablag's uh, appearance in this book, he's only there for like a couple of chapters at most. And he seems to be one of those weird kind of uh, creatures with supernatural powers. I mean, there's only one scorpion we've ever seen in the series so far. And uh, Scrablag is kind of given this same space as a lot of the other shadow trope members that we've seen in the books so far. And he's pretty big, right? Like I, I kind of had a hard time judging the scale at this point. But we get the impression that Scrawblag is big enough to kill like a full size rat. Like scale is always weird in these books because you know it. I think the scale kind of starts to shrink a little bit more as the books become more cohesive, and like badgers are clearly huge, right? But I don't know that they're so much bigger in comparison to to the rats, and I I think in life. A, and an actual scorpion would get to be about the same size as a rat. So yeah, I, I, he has enough, he's big enough, you know, to, to really be, I think a, a menace. I don't think of him in the same sense of like, you know, a giant scorpion or something. Um, but I think it's certainly supposed to be like a beast that is as big as any of the other creatures in this book. Yeah, I kind of imagined it as like tiger to human sized where, you know, a tiger is is bigger than a human, but, um, you know, the, in the kind of scale, um, it, it probably didn't help that it was also like in a den. So <laughs> kind of thinking, like, right. oh, well, this is maybe that's what uh, Jake's is kind of going for. Yeah, I kind of in my head anyway, I envisioned that. Scrablag is probably about the same size as, uh, you know, Kabul, the same size as any of the rats, maybe not the same size as Ronblade. 
um, because I, I think clearly Ron Blade, you know, deals with it pretty differently a little later in the book. But um, I I think sizable enough, you know, to to give Ron Blade some trouble. Um, right. So I yeah I th- I think that he's supposed to be. I guess likening him to a tiger in relationship to a human, that, that feels about right to the scale I had in my head. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, because I was trying to kind of piece it together. And the evidence for that is kind of what we see with Ron Blade later, which we'll t- touch on. Um, the other thing that stuck out to me is um, this kind of lost at sea moment between Mario and Tarquin where um, – they they get hit by this ship, uh, the Sea Town, and then they're kind of floating for a while. And it's it's nighttime, it's dark, and uh, Mariel is kind of treading. She's running an energy treading, and Tarquin says, "Why don't you just get on my back and you can float on me, and uh, you know I'll try to carry us." And she's like, "Well, what will you do when you get tired?" And he's just kind of selfishly, "Well, we'll figure it out when we get there," kind of a thing. And I thought that this was a really cool moment for Tarquin because. Um, he re- he reads the situation really well, and he kind of does what um, is very uh, reminiscent of what the Long Patrol does, which is to uh, give an opportunity for survival. So that it's just cool to see hairs kind of step up in this way, and uh, no different than we would expect with any hairs that we've seen thus far, right? And him trying mm-hmm. to take this kind of sacrificial approach. Uh, we saw Basil do it with, uh, with Jess um, in Redwall, and we're kind of seeing it happen here. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear, at least in my mind, that the hares are kind of consummate servicemen. Um, they're, you know, kind of trained for these kinds of moments and always treat it with a bit of levity, even in spite of the fact that, you know, this is not nearly the place for humor. Um, but Tarquin always kind of manages to make a little bit of a joke of it. Um, and in this instance, you know, he just kind of brushes off the danger. He's like, you know, but don't worry about that now. You know, let's worry about that later. I love these elements of book three. And I honestly wish that we could go back and restructure so much of this book to focus more on these kind of Corsair sea traveling adventures, because I think that this is where Mariel is strongest. Um, the the book, anyway, is strongest. And I felt like as they're floating out to sea and the green fang gets smashed up by the sea talon and then the wave blade comes in, there was just this swashbuckling adventure that I felt we were really on the cusp of. And I want so much more of that from this book. Well, in chapter 31, with their first raid successful, the long patrol plots another rescue mission to save some of gray patches or slaves together with the moles, the long patrol yet again, outwit or outwits, Grey Patch's defenses, this time burrowing under Grey Patch's traps and securing another six prisoners from under the sea rats' noses. Yeah, so in this chapter, um, this is where Grey Patch um, notices that, or... Um, it's one of his rats notices that something weird is happening. Because Grey Patch sets up a bunch of traps around his camp 
And the long patrol spot the traps and are like, you know, this is kind of clever. What if we re-employed these against Grey Patch to help cover our escape? Ah, yes. I'm sorry. I got this confused with the cage where we learn about the cage later. This is before that. Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. They kind of exploit the traps that have been kind of set and around the encampment and use those against um, in chase. So they kind of come in, spring, spring the traps, um, rile up all the rats. Uh, and then once they're caught in their own snares uh, or they're caught in their own devices, they're able to get some of the slaves in and get away with it. Um, I would chalk this up to similar hair shenanigans that we saw in the previous chapter. Um, definitely fun to read. And, and it's cool to see you know, Gray Patch um, slowly losing it. Like he's really, his band is unraveling relatively quickly. Um, and uh, uh, he was becoming a lot more desperate, um, but he's also getting a lot more uh, tactical. And we kind of see that with uh, the evolution of the traps into what I had alluded to the uh, cage that he builds. Yeah, I really love this kind of continuing campaign in a way this campaign is kind of the inverse of the attack on Redwall, where now we have the long patrol actively working against gray patch and i i just love the kind of turn of tactics and the the turn of power um, back to Redwall, as we clearly see this isn't going to work out for gray patch too much longer well, chapter 32, Danden and Dury are taken onto the Rat Helm as ore slaves and get a taste for what captivity is like under Captain Cat's Eyes. But as the ship is hauled into Terramort and the captain and crew prepare for dealing with Gabool, a mysterious stranger trapes aboard the ship and effects a slave escape. Some swashbuckling ensues as Danden and company are set free. After the sea rats have been dispatched, the mysterious stranger reveals his identity. He is none other than Joseph the Bellmaker. This is probably my favorite, um, my favorite Danden chapter. Um, I think that this whole experience that he has along with the other slave, uh, the slave, uh, sorry, or slaves, um, and how he kind of gets uh, an idea of what this cruel life is under Gabul and the sea rats um, makes him kind of like a hardened <laughs> individual. Like he gets a lot more of a rebellious spirit, and um, he, him, uh, and Dury have a lot more um, empathy for what these slaves are. Um, experiencing daily and i really like how dury even says like you know i i hope that i run in i'm able to run into one of the the captains um i gotta look at my notes <laughs> what i forget man cat's eyes no it's not cat's eyes it's his uh it's his buddy so he says he says you know i i i'd like to meet him you know i'd like to run into him again if i'm unchained and then when this sea, this swashbuckling kind of breaks out in this jail escape um, through this mysterious mouse, um, we get to we get to see that. So it, it, I really liked this chapter a lot, and I think it it was the only time to me that these two really shined in this book. Um, 
I and, and I was honestly surprised as to the reveal of this being Joseph. I thought this was Mariel for some reason. And I was like, oh, Mariel is like, you know, she got free. They find the boat, and you know, this is they're they're on the uh, a vessel with Ron Blade, and they just you know board this one. But then the reveal that it's Joseph is really really cool. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I find myself liking Dury more and more and more as I read the book. Um, he he kind of was not as compelling to me at first as Dinny because I I love Dinny so much in Mossflower, and Dury I think is there to fill a similar role. But the more I read Dury's dialogue, the more I watched Dury kind of develop as a character, the more and more I found myself getting really, really invested in Dury. At the same time, finding myself losing any investment in Danden as a character at all. But I think that what I love about this particular chapter is that it starts to show a little bit more of Danden. It certainly shows a lot of Dury, but I think it just takes the characters away from Redwall enough and puts them in a strange position where now they can actually start to have some character development where I, for some reason, I don't feel like there's much of that on the quest. I really wish that there had been an entire book two of just Danden and Dury dealing with stuff on this slave ship. I really wish that we had had way more of this kind of swashbuckling stuff. But I can also tell you my jaw hit the floor as soon as Joseph comes onto the page. Like this mysterious hooded figure who just jumps upon the deck of this ship and starts setting loose some slaves and it's clear like whoever this dude is he's got experience and he's a badass and immediately we um are are just like thrown back into all of Gabool's world you know because Joseph had only shown up for one chapter prior before getting kicked off Terramorp and and here we see him coming back and we begin to learn a little bit more about why Mariel is the way that Mariel is. And I feel like there's just a whole backstory we could have got with the adventures of Joseph that would have been so much better than this weird trek through, you know, odd moss flower country to get to this point. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that if we got in book two, the separation and we saw so much more of um, Joseph and Joseph's um, crew, which we'll kind of talk about later um, with Danden and Dury, I think it would be so much more of a rewarding story. I don't want to get rid of the um, the the Bobo stuff. Um, is that his name? Yeah. Bobo? Bobo. Yeah. Bobo. Sorry. Wow. My my names tonight are zero. <laughs> For 10 like i am not getting any names right by the way i do have to correct myself it's clat that uh, mm. uh dury is the one that says that he says i'd like to meet that clat when i don't have no chains on one day so 
Um, but yeah, I, I'm totally with you in this idea that I, I would have loved to explore this rebellion a little bit more. And I would have loved to see these characters separated from Mario and Tarquin and have their time to kind of work with Joseph the Bellmaker in this rebellion and have that be uh, more of the entertainment that we see in book two. I think that that's a lot better than the quest, um, how the questing kind of happens and, uh, you know, finding a compass, which I joked about earlier. I think that this is way more interesting than that. Yeah. Well, in chapter 33, Grey Patch's horde grows mutinous over the lack of food, but Grey Patch refuses to hunt without first securing his prisoners. A disagreement follows about Grey Patch's leadership, and finally, Big Fang draws arms against his former commander. The two rats fight, and Grey Patch leaves Big Fang slain. Witness to the altercation is Oak. Tom, a fat squirrel who was formerly an Abbey Dibbon. Tom explains the hostage, hostage situation to Mother Mellis and the Long Patrol, and Clary decides on a daring course of action. Meanwhile, Gabool grows ever crazier while his crew suspects something must be up on Terramort after their two ships sink in the harbor below. As Mariel, Tarquin, and Ronblade approach Terramort, they spot Gabool's returning fleet in the distance. After a close encounter with the Nightwake, Mariel and her sortie make final preparations for approaching Terramort. Yeah, this chapter, um, man, we we see a lot of just gray patches unraveling in this chapter. This is also where they build the cage. So he's trying to protect the remaining slaves, but this showdown between gray patch and uh, big Fang um, being witnessed by Tom is, is kind of brutal. And I, I didn't know who Tom was. I thought maybe I just skipped over his name earlier. This is the first introduction of this character. So um, if you're a dumb, dumb reader like me and you didn't know that, um, this is, uh, it's like he kind of is introduced in the story and everyone's like, Oh, Hey Tom, how's it going? But I was like, was he ever mentioned before? Uh, definitely not. I don't know why they always reference him as a fat squirrel too. Um, <laughs> it's just kind of funny that that's, that's always the description for him. Um, but I like Tom, I think he's actually a pretty cool character and, um, he's there to deliver a message talking about, you know, what it is that's going on with gray patch. And he directly gets involved with the plot. He jumps right in and is um, now kind of a central character to a lot of the developments that happen in Redwall um, from, you know, the kind of Redwall story uh, in, in this um, bigger story. Yeah, Oak Tom, I think, looms large, not to make a pun of him, but he he shows up and he, he starts to make an immediate impact in book three. This is one of the things that I feel perhaps least satisfied with Jake's in how he tells stories because he does this pretty often where he'll bring in a really cool character idea just in the middle of nowhere without real setting up of this character and the stakes for this character and yet gives these characters pretty big roles in spite of the fact that they're only there for a short amount of time. And Oak Tom's role in this book is actually pretty significant in the long run. What I like about Oak Tom is that he is formerly a resident of Redwall who has kind of gone off and made his own 
way in Moss Flower. And yet his allegiance to Redwall is really, really strong. And so, you know, he kind of comes in and immediately we see him as kind of like the symbolic representation of, I think, Moss Flower and Moss Flower's relationship to Redwall. You know, once you go to Redwall, you're forever changed by that. You're forever a Redwaller, even if you don't live there. And, and that's kind of Oak Tom's story. So Oak Tom comes in, he serves an important function here of just helping the characters learn some information that's going to be necessary for the plot. But, but his symbolic function, I think, is also really important for the later parts of this book. Yeah, I'm with you with his introduction, though, because it, it, it Jake's kind of did this with Bane in Mossflower, where he's just kind of introduced and then he becomes a central part of the third act. Um, and that's exactly how this feels here, where it, he just is dropped in. Um, I, I You're totally right with his allegiance, and that is something I like about his character. But I feel like his introduction, I don't know, it would have been cool to see a little bit more with that rather than just reading a paragraph that says a fat squirrel saw this happen and then he's he introduces himself. Yeah, I definitely think that Oak Tom should have been more of a part of the whole book, you know? Um, yeah. And I, I don't know who he needs. I don't know that he needs to be a replacement for any other character, but I certainly think that he as an additive presence could have made for so much more, I think kind of dynamic storytelling range in the rest of the book. Yeah. And we'll talk about this at the very end, but it's also weird that he gets an inclusion in the wrap up of the whole book as to like what he goes on to do because of your point, Trevor, he wasn't really introduced in the main central cast at the beginning of the of the book. So it just seems weird. Like, why are we getting a follow-up on him when we don't get a follow-up <laughs> on so many other characters that we've seen more, you know, a screen time or time on the page or however you want to describe it. You mm -hmm. know, it just, it's it not as satisfying to me. I do like him mm -hmm. as a character. I think the fat descriptor is kind of funny. Maybe Jake's is saying like, you know, <laughs> uh, that descriptor is good because he is on his own. So he's clearly, finding food and he's living well, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, just, just very odd to me. Yeah. I, I have a lot of thoughts about Oak Tom and, and his relationship to the book. I, I kind of wonder, I almost wonder if Oak Tom and Packetug originally were the same character, but then he needed Packetug somewhere else. So he just made up Oak Tom. Um, I'm not entirely sure, but Whatever the case, you know, Oak Tom kind of shows up and and I, I I do like his presence. I I do really enjoy him in this story. The other component to this chapter, though, that I think is great is this kind of near miss close encounter between the Nightwake and so Mariel. funny. Dude. It's great. And this is, again, one of those moments where I'm like. I wish we had so much more of this swashbuckling, you know, <laughs> sitting on a boat kind of adventure because there's so much storytelling that I think can be done here. And so many elements where it's like, we know Ron Blade can, can clean up, right? But there's a, a sense of danger, like real danger. Oh no, the fleet is returning. And now what do we do? And Mariel and, and Tarquin 
and Ron Blade all having to kind of like dress up or hide on the boat so that nobody suspects that maybe they aren't a rat crew. I it's just something I love. I I felt like it was a really funny little chapter, but also played into the danger of like approaching Gabool. I really feel like it's starting to come together where now we have the stakes established and we're going to see how the rest of the book kind of turns out. This is the kind of adventure that I absolutely love. And it's what I think this book starts to do the best of any of the other stories that we've seen. Well, in chapter 34, Colonel Clary, Brigadier Time, and Han Rosie gear up for their effort to free Graypatch's slaves once and for all. They are joined by Oak Tom, Tree Rose, and Roof Brush, all agreeing to assist in the slaves' escape. Side by side, the Long Patrol marches into the middle of Grey Patch's encampment, dealing death as they go. Alongside Pakatug, the Long Patrol succeed in setting free Grey Patch's prisoners, but are surrounded by the Sea Rat Horde and are forced to make a dramatic and violent final stand. Back at Redwall, the slaves arrive, but no sign can be seen of the Long Patrol. Mother Mellis and Flag leave the Abbey in search of their lost allies. Oh boy, I have a lot of thoughts on this chapter, but I know you do too, Trev, and I think I might save most of mine for our review episode with Tiff, Tiff and William. So why don't you start with this one? I mean, man, uh, talk about your memorable last stands. There are a couple of sequences in the Redwall series where I think Jake's just hits a home run. And this is one of those passages. We've had enough time to get really connected with Clary time and Han Rosie. We've had some, some spills with them. We've seen them come from Salamandastron to Redwall. We've seen how competent they are. And there is something genuinely upsetting about seeing them gear up for this kind of final stand and then realizing as the chapter commences that they're not likely to walk this one off with a joke. And uh, yeah, I think just like the Malchorus section of Matameo is one of the best, I think, cinematic kind of sequences of the series, or just like I think the final stand of uh, Boar the Fighter um, in in Mossflower. It was Boar, right? I'm not losing my mind. It was Boar, yeah. Yeah, like... I feel like these are kind of the moments where Redwall takes on almost an entirely separate energy. And this chapter is just pitch perfect. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's something to say about the violence of this chapter too. This last stand is a lot more graphic than a lot of the fights that we've seen before. Um, And just the, the, casualties that amount from the long patrols last stand um against gray patch and his his horde um we actually get a full number of that we'll kind of talk about that later too as to how many are, are left 
Um, but I think that uh, some of the impact as to what this sacrifice means um, is driven home by by how uh, violent and also driven home by um, Jake's kind of um, giving the score from this, right? <laughs> like, I, mm -hmm. I think that's very intentional in his writing, and I think it's a it was expertly done. Um, I read this chapter and kind of forgot I was reading Redwall for a second. I'm not going to lie because I was just like, this is absolutely crazy how descriptive he is with this violence um, and uh, how cinematic the whole thing felt. Um, very impactful. The thing that really got me that stood out the most to me is that as they're preparing for this last stand, no one really knows what the Long Patrol is planning to do. But Clary gives um, a note to go to Flag and in the note describes how and why they had to take this last stand. And yeah. even Mother Mellis has this time of compassion saying, well, did we kind of drive them to do this because of um, the concern for the slaves and flag reassures them that this had to happen, that this yeah. is the nature of the long patrol, um, which is huge. Again, talking about the impact and, and how craftful the Jake's kind of writes this, um, this, this honestly kind of flipped the, the conversation around this book for me. Um, and, I think that this is going to be the thing I remember most about this book is mm -hmm. the long patrol stand. And, um, it, I, I, I think I texted you this as a joke that we should change the name to hairs and hardbacks after, <laughs> after this, this, uh, um, this moment, it's really impactful. And, um, this is one that I really encourage anyone to read. Like if you, um, well, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a fan of Redwall, but <laughs> this is one that's just really good to to revisit because I do think that there's just a it's a different kind of Jake's that's writing this. Honestly, it feels a lot different than what we've seen um, in, in some previous books. There's just so much payoff in this particular chapter, you know, for all that I think the rest of the book has its problems and i definitely have a lot of criticisms of this one that i wouldn't have had for you know some of the others i think that the story the 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 actual arc of the long patrol in this book the way we get connected to clary and time and han rosie from the beginning of the book to this moment i i feel like the whole story of the long patrol is just perfect and this being the culmination of that this being the culmination of gray patches storyline i think is just so excellently written um because we're invested we're invested in these characters and then we are kind of forced to watch them like boromir just get wrecked as they do you know their their most honorable duty to Redwall? I love it. Yeah, it's really good. Well, on that note, let's go ahead and take a quick break, and we'll be back with chapter thirty-five. Is that right? That's right. All right, we'll be back with that. In chapter 35, Gabul has gone fully insane. The phantom pelling of the bell having driven him past the point of breaking. But even as he fights phantom badgers, Ronblade and Mariel land at Terramore. 
The remaining crew of Fort Bladegirt scuttle off to try to meet Ronblade, but the Badger Lord and his friends are met by Durian Dandon, who sequester the newcomers away to meet Trag, the Terramort resistance against Gabul, led by Joseph the Bellmaker. Mariel and Joseph are gratefully reunited, after which they take the score of what comes next. Joseph has vowed to lead former galley slaves in an uprising against Gabul, and all present pledge their might against the tyrant Sea King. So I don't want to harp on this too hard, because I know we talked about it um, just a few chapters back, but uh, this feels so reminiscent to Moss Flower and the Quorum that I just wish we spent more time with this. I love this rebellion, the track that's kind of um, that's brewing behind the scenes that they're using uh, Terra Mort and the, the intricate tunnels, hidden tunnels of Terra Mort in order to hide their masses as they get ready. They're plundering ships for goods and weaponry to eventually use in a last stand with Gabul. This is so much more interesting than the quest at all. Like this is so I wish that they would have found some kind of, um, you know, instead of a, a way to find Terramort, I wish that uh, Mariel and crew would have found some um, evidence of what's it called of Trag in order to mm. try to join in this alliance. And then, you know, that's kind of the motivation of their quest and the way that they're able to kind of build up to this finale, which we're quickly approaching. Um, I think this is such a cool idea, um, but I will I will say this is probably my biggest criticism for this book is that it is not explored nearly enough. And it happens so quickly. And just chapters later, we see resolve for this. And I really wish we spent way more time with this than the the quest that was going on. I don't know if that's interesting for kids. You know, I don't know if a kid feels that way. Like maybe the shorter sections are uh, better um, tested or, you know, focus mm. groups that we just don't know. But to me, this is so much more interesting in a storytelling perspective um, for Redwall that I would love to see more about. You kind of mentioned it with Corsairs too. I would love to see some um, some naval bat- battles ha- that ha- are happening with the Trag rather than just um, focus directly on Terramort. Really, really cool idea that I just feel like Jake's is throwing in here towards the end that um, has a payoff, but it's not nearly as impactful as it could have been. Yeah, I, I kind of almost feel like the entire quest of Mariel could have been cut from the book and we could have focused on Joseph and and dealing with the track that would have been so much more impactful i i am torn because i know that this is supposed to be mariel's story but i also feel like mariel does so very little in comparison to some of the other you know secondary characters in this book that it it feels bad that you know, Mariel's journeys in this book are the least interesting parts of the book. Yeah, I I agree. And I kind of think that her reunion with Joseph, the bellmaker, is really overshadowed coming off that crazy harrowing chapter of the Long Patrol. Like, you know, there's there's a lot of emotion packed into the Long Patrol. And I guess this is supposed to be a reprieve from that emotion. But I genuinely thought that it was just kind of overshadowed by it. Yeah. I yes, man, 
I I love so much of book three. I almost feel like book three is an entirely different book from the rest of Mariel of Redwall. I and, agree. I think it's I think it's the best book too. Like uh, uh, yeah. compared to book one and two, I really think it is the most compelling. Um, but yeah. I also think it's the one that should have been longer. Yes. Book yes. one should have been as long as book three is. You know what I mean? Let's spend yeah, yeah, yeah. way more time with this. Yeah. No, I I, I totally agree. Well, in chapter thirty six, Mellis and Flag come across two sea rats searching for Han Rosie who escaped the melee the day before. They quickly usher her unconscious form back to Redwall, where Simeon and Sister Sage get to work attending to Rosie's wounds. Meanwhile, back at Grey Patch's camp, his horde has been reduced to a mere 18 living by, or eighteen living by the combined efforts of the Long Patrol and Packetug. With nothing left, Graypatch decides to transit back to the Dark Queen, where they will make their attempt back to the open seas. Okay, this sequence um, made me think a lot about Bella in Mossflower and the kind of rush to try to get Martin to to um, be healed. This felt very familiar to that, and I was genuinely shocked to see um, that there's a, a, a chance for Rosie's survival. This is something that I just did not expect. My only criticism with this <laughs> i know we're being really, really critical in these last few chapters i don't really understand why um uh Mellis and flag um were asleep you know they rush out in order to try to find <laughs> any survivors um from the last stand from just a few chapters back but then we're introduced to them and, and uh flag has to wake up Mellis because they're sleeping as they're waiting for these rats to patrol. I would want to see way more urgency in them trying to recover any survivors from this that I really don't know why the sleep was introduced. It seems like maybe Jake's is just kind of stuck in this autopilot way of writing these intros to these chapters <laughs> or these time breaks. I don't know. But that just seemed like a very strange thing to happen. It It's odd, but I don't know. Matthias falls asleep all the time on the quest. You know, (laughs) like I feel like I felt too, like, where's the sense of urgency here? Uh, But at the same time, I was a lot more forgiving of it because it was like, they don't know where they're going. They really have no clue. They're not the long patrol, right? They, they're not the consummate trackers that these hares were. And I think for me, I was a lot more forgiving of the fact, especially because as they woke up, there was a lot of tension about, you know, there are some rats out here and we should probably take care of them. Um, the whole sequence worked for me better than I think Matthias just falling asleep in the middle of, you know, like, oh, yeah, Redwall's under attack or under assault. Uh, I'll get to that when I get to it. Um, I, I, I'm a, a bit more willing to forgive jakes for that that character break there yeah one of my favorite lines comes from this i mean i kind of alluded to it just a few chapters back um but it's gray patch lamenting at the Mossfire woods for the loss of his troops and it says he had stolen the dark queen and set sail for terramort with a crew of a hundred able-bodied sea rats and now he was sitting in this landlocked hell of greenery with only 18 left 
this is a really cool line that Jake's kind of throws in here to give us an idea as to what had happened in this final stand. Well, over the course of his attack on Redwall, what the cost of that is, and then also what Gray Patch is left with. He barely has, you know, he has more than a dozen rats that are left that are hardly loyal because of um, all the turbulence that they've kind of gone through. And, um, and and we can kind of see <laughs> this is getting toward the end of old gray patch for sure. We're, man, we're growing to a close. And again, I, I just, this is another one of those elements of gray patch's story that cements the whole of gray patch's assault on Redwall as one of my favorite assaults on Redwall in the whole series. Well, chapter 37, Ron blade, Mariel Tarquin and Joseph hold a council of war. They plot a three-pronged assault on Fort Bladegirt, expecting to draw out Gabool's attention while Ron Blade smashes his way through the fort's rear wall. Joseph gives a rousing speech and call to action, promising that they will return to Redwall once the fight is won. I have zero notes for this chapter. Very cool. Very, you know, <laughs> building up to the climax. We kind of get that Independence Day rallying cry that, you know, right before the final assault. Um, yeah. And that's it. <laughs> I don't have anything else. Yeah. I Again, I, I lament that this wasn't more of the book. Because for me, this was definitely a chapter where I'm like, Jake's is firing on all cylinders here. I'm so invested in this assault on Fort Bladegirt. It really feels momentous. I really wish I had more time with Joseph because the more time I spend with Joseph, the more I love this character. Yeah, I think this should have been paralleled with, uh, you know, I think they Jake's would have been smart to have the last stand of the patrol happen parallel with this happening you Mm -hmm. know like we're getting the gearing up of the long patrol we're getting this rousing speech we see the last stand we see this fight on terramore like it would have been cool to kind of time these out to happen simultaneously Mm -hmm. um in the narrative yeah yeah because as the assault is revving up the 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 end of gray patch is kind of (laughs) like not revving down what's the opposite of rev it's slowing down right it's like coming coming to a halt yeah and you bet you in our review i'm gonna argue uh tooth and nail that gray patch is the villain of this story Mm. you know like he is i I fully believe that he is the main villain of this story and um with his um not that the the stuff with terramore isn't interesting but the winding down of gray patch felt like more of the you know kind of um end of this story like mm-hmm. because everything happens so fast on terramore like if this was spread out so much longer i think that the mm-hmm. impact would be bigger but we've had the assault and redwall happening since early in book book two you know so there's just a lot more to spread out with it yeah yeah i'm gonna share my final thoughts about gray patch in chapter 38 here because this is where gray patch's group gets lost and finally decides to split up to best cover their ground back to the Dark Queen. Oak Tom follows and deliberately misleads two of the three groups toward the land of the Flitch Eye. Catching up with Graypatch, Oak Tom leads the rats into the waiting beak of Iraktan, the heron who menaced Mariel and company earlier. 
Grey Patch escapes, only to meet Oak Tom, who avenges the Long Patrol by finally slaying the Rat Captain. Finally free of assault, Redwall sets its sights on restoring the damage done by the pirates, including a new effort to finish the construction of their bell tower. All right, what are your thoughts? I mean, this is the thing. This chapter is another one of those stretches where I think Jake's becomes the most cinematic. Gray Patch is lost. We see that he's not able to to handle Moss Flower quite like the Red Wallers did. Oak Tom clearly knows what's up and is able to kind of lead them off the path into these disaster zones, which I think is really interesting and kind of ties into maybe a little bit of a redemption arc for Mariel's journey, even though I still don't like Mariel's journey in this book. But I think that we're given a real satisfying end to Grey Patch here. If you consider all of the other major villains in any of the three books that come before have their comeuppance happen just kind of spontaneously, mostly by accident as they fall into wells or a bell falls on them or what have you. I think that this is the most direct confrontation between someone who symbolizes Redwall, which is Oak Tom, and someone who, uh, you know, symbolizes the complete opposite of a of spirit of Redwall. And the act of vengeance that Oak Tom takes against Grey Patch, the way that Jakes describes this confrontation is just the chef's kiss end to this character that I wanted and that I've wanted for three books now. Yeah, I totally agree. I actually wanted to read that on mic. Grey Patch had his sword free now, but the squirrel's face was so full of vengeance and rage that the sea rat's natural boldness and cunning deserted him completely. The sword fell from his nerveless claws into the water as he turned and ran with the flowing stream. It was a full three days later that Grey Patch made it to the sea, floating face up with Oak Tom's lance standing out from his corpse like a mast with no sail. The two gallant hares of the long tr- of the long patrol had been avenged and Redwall Abbey was freed of further trouble, all with one swiftly thrown lance. It's it's kind of what you said. It's so beautiful and cinematic and pays off so well in this that you're totally right. I wish we saw this in Madame Ale. I wish we saw this in Mossflower. Mm. Not that those stories weren't um weren't good, but this payoff is like the payoff that readers have been wanting. And this is why I think that the uh, the um story of Grey Patch and his assault on Redwall is the main um obstacle, the main protagonist of this story. I really don't think it's Gabul because we don't really get that payoff with Gabul. The funny thing is, is I called this in book one. If you go back and listen to, to episode <laughs> one, I had not read this book and I was like, I think Grey Patch is the the main villain of this story. And this this kind of cements it for me for sure. This is why I'd argue tooth and nail. My only criticism of this, and we'll talk about this with the whole group as well, is that I just wish it wasn't Oak Tom to do this because he's introduced so quickly. 
his vengeance, you know, maybe, maybe Jake's did this intentionally because we have this new character that comes in and he's the one that kind of delivers vengeance. Um, but I wish this was Saxtus. You know, we had the whole conversation mm-hmm. with Saxtus, Saxtus where he doesn't really understand when is the right time uh, to take a life or why would you take a life? If he was the one to do this in revenge, I think that would bring him full circle so much more. I don't know why he would get here to do mm-hmm. this, you know, so maybe that's why Jake did, did it, why he did. See, I have a hot take about why, for me, it could only ever have been Oak Tom. And the reason is because we've had three books now explained to us that vengeance is not the way that Redwall really works. I mean, we can split hairs about how Clooney was killed because, you know, dropping a bell on him, what do you really expect to happen, Matthias? But in most other instances, it is not a Redwaller who ends up, you know, kind of finishing the deed. It's not a Redwaller that ends up coming up and striking against these terrible figures. And here we have Oak Tom, and we've established that Oak Tom was a former Redwaller who has gone off and kind of made his own way in Mossflower. He doesn't reside at Redwall anymore even though he carries on the spirit of Redwall. And I think for me, it would feel so much more cold-blooded for a Redwaller to do this to Graypatch than for a former Redwaller who kind of has this mentality of like, you mess with Redwall, you mess with all of us. And I, I think that if it had come from Saxtus, it would have undermined Saxtus's crisis of conscience. It would have turned him into a killer. Whereas for Oak Tom, I'm more al- like allowing, I guess, I'm more willing to allow for him to take on this act of vengeance because he isn't essentially a Red Waller. He's only kind of a, a protector of Red Wall. Um, as someone who understands its its value as a semi-outsider. So this is a really cold act of vengeance. And, th- and it's one of the things that I think makes it so amazing. And, and, and um, my taste for it is so pronounced because I, I think that this is a kind of, of moss flower justice that you're not going to get from a red waller. And I, I think Oak Tom for me is the only character in the book who I'm okay with taking this kind of cold stance of murder um, against, you know, someone who has already kind of essentially been beaten, but it's not about, uh, you know, necessarily further protecting Redwall. It's all about sending the, the message <laughs> and, and, I don't think that that sits with me as well as if it were uh, someone from Redwall. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Trevor, I don't like your answer, but I know it's the right one. (laughs) Well, chapter 39. Mariel and Danden begin their assault on Fort Blade Girt alongside the leadership of Joseph Tarquin and Ron Blade. Their initial assault covers Ron Blade's rear assault, which proves successful in bringing down the rear wall of the fort. As Ron Blade and Joseph's forces converge on the rear wall, 
Mariel, Danden, and Tarquin break through the front gates to join a brutal melee. Gabul's sea captains cannot stand up to the combined ferocity of the Trag forces, leading to a near total rout. As mop-up efforts commence, Ronblade has torn off from the central melee in hot pursuit of Gabul. Yeah, I don't really have a whole lot of notes for this one. Um, the only thing that I noted was just Ronblade's um, continual tap in of the Blade Wrath or the Blood Wrath, um, where he kind of taps into it a few times, one with the boulder in order to get it down um, and smashing into that rear wall, and then second in his his pursuit of Kabul. And we kind of see a change happen in the next chapter, so we can kind of skip over that note to talk about it then. Um, But that's really the only thing that stood out to me. Good good writing and good good Mm -hmm. fighting that's happening, but I didn't feel like anything here um, stands out any more than what we've seen in the past. Yeah, I it, this is just a great action piece. Like I just I love the way that Jake's writes action. I always have, I always will. And I think that this is just another one of his like flexing his muscles for telling a story of brutal combat. And I adore this chapter um just as I adore so many other chapters. This is another one of those moments for me that the book really stands out. Um, I mentioned that, you know, there are a couple of spots in this book that really, really work for me that become very memorable. It is of course, um, the, the long patrol teaching the long bows and then the long patrols last stand. And then this chapter where, um, they assault Fort Bladegirt. I just love these three chapters and the way that Jake's handles his prose. Well, in chapter 40, Saxtus awaits for the return of his friends back at Redwall, and we see the Abbey goers as they continue their labors at forging forward. Saxtus and Simeon exchange thoughts about the spirit of Martin, and Saxtus contributes his thoughts on the ongoing weaving of the great Abbey tapestry. At Fort Blade Girt, a different scene of prophecy unfolds as Ron Blade enters Gabool's keep and discovers his missing bell. Joined by the other heroes, Ron Blade corners Gabool, who attempts to kill the Badger Lord by sacrificing him to Scrablag. Ron Blade hauls the scorpion out of its cell by throwing it to the ceiling, where it falls on Gabool, killing him. Dandin then dispatches of the scorpion, bringing an end to Gabul, Fort Bladegirt, and the sea rat rule of Terramort. Each of the remaining ships of Gabul's fleet are renamed and recommissioned. Dury Quill becomes captain of the Wave Blade, now called Gabriel. Tarquin L. Woodsorrel becomes captain of the former Black Sail, now named Han Rosie. Dandin inherits the Nightwake, now named the Abbot Bernard, and the Crab Claw is renamed back to the Periwinkle, helmed by Joseph the Bellmaker. With Fort Blade Girt aflame, Ron Blade reveals that Martin roused him from his blood wrath and saved him from Scrablag, and the magnificent Joseph Bell is now bequeathed to Redwall. All right, the final chapter, well, not final chapter, we have the wrap-up, but really the <laughs> conclusion of this this quest to Terramore and, uh, and Fort 
Blaker, and we see the demise of Gabul. Uh, hands up if you thought that an environmental kill would kill Gabul. Uh, <laughs> I feel like this was pretty pretty much this is the trope at this point that Jake's loves to kill the main villain, not by the hand of vengeance that everyone swears, but instead by some environmental kill. I thought he was going to get tossed into the sea, so seeing him killed by a scrap lag uh, felt um, uh, <laughs> fitting, I suppose. Um <laughs> This whole sequence unravels so quickly. Um, the first is that I thought Ron Blade was going to die when he gets stabbed by a Gabool. Gabool mm. turns and quickly stabs him with a knife. But um, then I kind of remember, oh, yeah, he's a badger wearing armor. Um, I don't know <laughs> why, you know, that's it's it's said that he wears his armor, but his never his armor isn't really ever talked about until this moment where, you know, Jake's is like, mm-hmm. oh, he was wearing armor, so he's OK. But then this blood raft being the thing that is almost his demise, but then we learn that Martin's able to pull him out of it um, is super cool because we kind of see a little bit of this soft magic, the Martin spirit a little bit, um, mm. triumphing, uh, the, the triumph of that over the blood raft, right? Like it's kind of cool to yeah. see that these th- these kind of uh, mystical um, elements, how they're uh, working in this power struggle. And I don't know. I just thought it was really cool to see that that event kind of happened that the blood wrath really isn't the, uh, the, the um, strongest magic or driving force in here, but instead it's, it's Martin, right? it's the spirit of Martin. It's kind of what I took from that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. There's man, there's so much about this end too. I just can't get enough of, I love Ron blade going into Fort blade Gert. I like you was shocked when he took a knife to the chest. I, I was for sure. Like I didn't remember Ron blade dying in this book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, and then when it, when it didn't happen, I was like, Oh, Jake's you rascally scallywag like <laughs> playing with my heartstrings here um but then the the confrontation with scrablag where uh gabool basically goads ron blade into a fist fight that he knows he can't win but that's because that's kind of how gabool works right he he's always playing on that that knife's edge uh and he's just planned just ahead enough to try to sacrifice scrablag or, or sacrifice ron blade to scrablag I also think that Gabool's demise <laughs> is so gruesome. Uh, and and again, we get this very explicit <laughs> explicit call of of the violence. Scrablag uh, stabbing Gabool multiple times in the back of the head as Scrablag has Gabool uh you know strangled between his pincer claws. It's wild to me. Yeah, I kind of forgot that um, th- that that's how it happened in in the sequence because I remember he get hitting getting hit in the head, but I thought it was like once. But you're totally right; he's like gets pierced multiple times. Um, yeah, probably uh, probably not good for your uh, mental health. Let's say no, <laughs> <laughs> uh, stung no, in the head so many times. It's pretty gnarly. But I also, you know, like you, I love the deepening of this lore of of magic. You know, like Ron Blade's uh, real weakness. You know, his critical weakness being this blood wrath, and um, him only being able to come out of it because of the compassion of Martin the Warrior. 
Um, and, and Martin as this kind of spirit, I think, of protection for those that are, you know, most important to these lands. Um, I, I just, I love this denouement. I find it so satisfying to me. And environmental d death combined with a shadow trope is not quite something we've seen before. <laughs> it's a little new, yeah. Yeah. I do wish that Mariel would have done in... Uh, scrap like I, I wish that she would have like brained him with gold whacker uh, all right i'm gonna i'm gonna find this line because i think it's absolutely my favorite line i i i cracked up as i was reading it um <laughs> because you know you know that scene where tarquin talks or or all of the characters kind of come together and um <laughs> like everybody's talking about how they're going to get a piece of Gabool, right? Like you're, you're going to have to get to Gabool before me because I'm going to stab him or I'm going to cut him apart or I'm going to hit him with my, um, <laughs> I'm going to hit him with my Harlina. There's like this promise that each of the characters make to get rid of Gabool. And then Gabool is dispatched by a scorpion. And in the middle of, all of this, like the dust is settling. You see um, Tarquin <laughs> and Tarquin addressed his Harlina consolingly. He says, well, follow me, old twanger. You never got to bring Gabool after all. Matter of fact, none of us did. What a shameful waste of such jolly good weapons. Yeah, it really sums it up. Like <laughs> any, <laughs> this is any, anyone but Dandin would have been better, honestly. Yeah, this is like, I feel like this is Jake's kind of making a joke about how many of us have likely read this book and been like, how come the bad guy is never just killed? You know, we have these swords, we have these weapons, like how come the bad guy is never just stabbed? And it seems like Tarquin kind of comes in here very tongue in cheek to be like, oh, what a waste. What a waste yeah. of all this weaponry. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's great. Anyway. In chapter 41, autumn approaches and Mariel and her friends have still not returned to Redwall. The Abbey Divins make an escape for the road and are caught by Ronblade, who is accompanied by Mariel and the others from Redwall. They are at last spotted by Saxtus, and all of Redwall rushes out to welcome back their champions and the bell they keep in tow. Uh, this interaction with Ronblade and the Divins has i regret saying anything bad about the dibbins this was so funny <laughs> and so like whimsical um i this was a very fun kind of wrap-up sequence to the story where he mistakes them as some rats that are you know uh getting into trouble uh full-on tongue-in-cheek winking about the situation it's very fun i really liked this a lot yeah, it's a great little character moment. I think that softens Ron Blade too in a way that makes me admire him all the more as a, a badger. Well, at long last, we get to the final chapter of Mariel of Redwall, chapter 42, where we get a glimpse of what Redwall looks like well after the events of the rest of the book. Abbot Saxtus summarizes the last several seasons now grown old joseph simeon hubert and old abbot bernard still reside at redwall 
but much has yet changed. Bag, run, and grub, all those dibbins we talked about, have all grown up, though still retain their mischievous ways. The bell has been properly named the Joseph Bell. Tarquin and Han Rosie got married. Dury Quill has taken on duties as cellar master with his old Nuncle Gabe, and the Trag refugees have moved into the Abbey. Oak Tom and Tree Rose married. Han Rosie and Tarquin were released from Salamandastron and formed the Fur and Foot Fighting Patrol, a company made up primarily of their offspring together. Roof Brush attached the Sword of Martin the Warrior to the Abbey's weather vane after careful study of the finished tapestry of Martin. Roof has taken up residence as the bell ringer as well. Bag is primed to become the new formal. Mariel and Danden eventually left the Abbey altogether in search of other adventures. The roof and woodwork of the bell tower was eventually constructed from the timbers of Gabul's four remaining ships, as well as a bridge to forge the old pike-infested waters encountered in Mariel's journey formerly. Lastly, Mariel's gullwhacker has been refashioned to assist in ringing the Joseph Bell, now the symbol of Redwall. So this wrap-up chapter, I had a lot of speculations as to what would happen. Because we, in this book, we kind of know from pre- previous books that Jake likes to do these, you know, what happened afterwards kind of set pieces. And in this one, I had a lot of speculation. The one that I was number one certain of is that Han Rosie and Tarquin were going to get married, right? Of course. Like, yeah. <laughs> if no. not, yeah, that was definitely going to happen. Um, but then some of these other ones I thought were really cool inclusions because they help to connect this story to Redwall, the first book of Redwall. So I think that that's really cool. Like obviously Joseph, Joseph and the Joseph Bell, the connection there, um, Mariel's Goldwacker being the um, apparatus to ring the bell. I don't know what you call that in a bell, mm-hmm. but um, that being part of it. And then I think it's really cool that Gabul's ships make the... Um, make the the tower the timber for the bell uh, bell tower. Yeah. I think that that's really cool. I like that inclusion. However, yeah. I felt like some of these other things just didn't really tie so well into um, the rest of the Redwall stories. Like I I don't really know. I'm curious if Jake's is going to try to connect these later in other books, but some of these seemed like very odd inclusions. The number one being Mariel and, and Danden. I just didn't really, I mean, I guess it makes sense that the main character and um, I don't know, Danden end up together, but I also just felt like this was um, this, like, why did this have to be, why did this have to be, <laughs> you know, like, I don't really know. Yeah, I don't know. This is something that I just didn't think was. um, I think it was just included for inclusion's sake, but like, there's we don't know anything about the lineage that comes from them. They're not really part of Redwall anymore. Just seems like a very kind of strange inclusion. Yeah, I think in all of the many kind of wrap ups that we have of these books, this is the one that I felt least sentimental about. Agree. I think there are some really cool parts, you know, like you say, I I think it's kind of neat to know that it was Roof Brush who put the sword up on 
the weather vane. I, I don't know that, that I was ever going to really ask that question, but now that we have it answered, I'm kind of like, sure, why not? Yeah. Um, but you know, like you, I feel like, I feel like some of the point of these final chapters where we kind of do the snapshot of the sea where they are now, um, wrap ups is, is kind of to warm us up to the idea of other adventures in Redwall, you know, and, and like life kind of continues on. There's a celebration, I think of what Redwall symbolizes for us. And this is kind of the first chapter where I feel like Jake's didn't do that so much. I did not cry at the end of this book as I've cried in, at the end of the last three books. <laughs> like, um, and I, I think there's something about this book's conclusion that just didn't carry the same kind of um, nostalgic weight or the same kind of, um, I don't know, uh, beauty or, or, feeling of of what is the word i want it's not just completion like the the feeling of of kind of consummation of the end of this story so um I, again i don't know that there's anything in here that i'm really like well that was kind of lame um except that maybe it's just a, a kind of tone of delivery where i kind of felt like okay well that was fine it was a it was an okay wrap up. Yeah, um I'm I'm assuming we're gonna see more of these characters maybe in the Bellmaker, which is another book that's uh you know not too far away, that maybe Jake's wanted to leave some things open in order to explore more stories about that. But it just seemed like even the kind of wrap up of the cast that we're seeing, like um Oak Tom Tom being included in here, like I wanted to see more from other um, characters I want to see more from Simeon like what's he doing like what are the wrap-ups there and not necessarily some of the characters that we got I really think this is probably has to do with another book um, that you know maybe I'm wrong maybe this kind of pays off as we get further down the road entirely possible it, it, to be totally honest past this point in Redwall I don't know how much I'm gonna remember <laughs> like we're going into Salamandas yeah. from next and I'm not going to lie. I almost don't know a single thing about Salamandastrin, except that the main bad guy's name is just the same name spelled backwards. <laughs> like, like yeah. we're, we're going to see, that's the only thing I remember from the entire book. Um, otherwise it's like, I'm almost going in entirely blind, like entirely fresh. So, Yeah. Well, as you know, I'm always blind in these books. <laughs> Whenever I make a prediction that ends up paying off in, you know, episode three or four, I'm always happy about that. <laughs> uh, and if I make a prediction that doesn't pay off, uh, I just forget about it. Never mention it again. So, well, let's talk about some memorable characters here, um, as well as just something that I think I want to remember. Um, and then. I, I don't know. Should I go ahead and spoil the death total or should we wait for the, uh, now let's, let's wait for the next episode. Yeah. Let's do it in the review. Well, most memorable characters that we got a couple of new characters in book three that I felt were pretty interesting. Uh, Joseph, the bell maker, of course, Oak, Tom, Tam Locke, 
and then Barty and Dorcas. Man, I remember Tamlock, but I have no context as to who Tamlock is. So Tamlock was basically Joseph's kind of right-hand man. Uh, Tamlock was the one that kind of helped Joseph out of the, the, the sea when he was kicked over. Um, and Tamlock had a beef with one particular captain, and I've forgotten which captain it was, but... Uh, in the final assault on Fort Bladegird, Tamlock <laughs> gets his revenge against this captain in like a totally, totally uh, just cold-blooded way. Um, I, I, yeah, I totally him. forgot about this whole story arc completely. Yeah. I really did. Yeah, even looking at the Redwall wiki, um, they don't even name who that mortal enemy is, but yes, he he has a mortal enemy um and then later he goes to live on uh redwall abbey um not the mortal enemy tanlock does um so he's not gonna be my memorable character because obviously i didn't know who (laughs) he is um for me it's got to be joseph the bellmanger i think that his introduction is so impactful we get the introduction of the track Uh, i just think that he has such a driving force behind this um book three that for me he's the one that stands out the most yeah i think I think you're right. Joseph the Bellmaker makes such a, a huge impression with his introduction in this book and his appearance. Um, I really think that, you know, reintroducing Joseph the Bellmaker this late in the game um, was just a really interesting choice. I, I liked him a lot. I think for me, it's still Oak Tom, though. Um, I just love Oak Tom's role in the last third of this book. I felt like he really made a big splash. And I think my only regret is just that we didn't have more of him through the rest of the book. He could have been a really cool character to put in. And like I said, I almost feel like he was supposed to be Pakatug, but Pakatug got captured and then used as a, you know, kind of a squirrel shield for so long. I I feel like Jake's put Oak Tom in here specifically to take up that role. Um, but I love that confrontation with Grey Patch at the end, and I think that's what makes Oak Tom very memorable for me. Well, how about some vermin? We've got uh, Scrablag, <laughs> we've got Blodge Clat, and Captain Cat's Eyes, Captain Hookfin, and Rip Tongue. <laughs> yeah, I think some of these just did not get enough screen time for for the the warrant of most memorable vermin. Um, I got to go with Scrawblag because of his, you know, environmental shadow trope, death of uh, <laughs> <laughs> Gabul. Um, that's that's really the the standout for me. Um, I I like I like when Jake's throws in these weird characters. Are probably always going to be the top ones for me. Like we saw it with um, we saw it with the Gloomer and uh, mm-hmm. Storm. And, you know, these are things that I really love in Jake's writing. So. It's got to be Scrawblag. Yeah, I'm I'm really into this shadow trope. I feel like the shadow trope characters are always some of my favorites. And uh, yeah, Scrawblag for sure. I think he's the only scorpion that we see in the series. I may be wrong, but I feel like he's the only scorpion I remember anyway. Well, at long last, there were some characters that we didn't talk about as much through this book that... In retrospect, I found myself um, thinking a lot more about, in spite of the fact that they have just a a small bit of screen time, 
And I wanted to come back and just make a few comments or, or reflect with you on some of these minor characters. So I call them the forgotten friends we want to remember <laughs> characters that we just didn't talk about, but show up. And I still think add a lot of flavor to this book. So uh, let's start with roof brush. What were, um, I mean, what, what are kind of your thoughts on roof here as, as our resident uh, squirrel? Yeah, he has a big presence in Redwall and uh, even more of a presence in that last act because of his inclusion kind of in, in, in the uh, later seasons, last chapter. Um, but we, I, in terms of personality, I don't really have much to say about him because he is just a silent type. He doesn't really talk too much. His role is definitely more of a doer rather than a sayer. So because of that, he definitely falls in the background for me. Yeah, I think I think he's very much the same. He he takes up a lot of importance, I think, but he's no just squirrel, you know. Um, and I think that for me, Roof started to take on more dimension in the last part of the book. Um, but I also confused him a lot with Flag, the otter. And um, I, I guess I wanted to kind of highlight these two together because I still think that they're important members of the Abbey um, in the same way that, you know, Jess and Winifred are. But I, I felt like their roles kind of kept kind of switching places throughout the narrative um, to where they, they started to kind of blend together. And it was really only toward the end of the book that I really felt like they started to take on more dimension. I do love this character, though, um, Burgo who is the mole who is always eating garlic in this book. Yeah, it's pretty funny because he we get some mentions of uh, a, a unusual stench or um, the stench from Burgo and his garlic. And it's just funny how he uh, really is obsessed with eating garlic. And uh, everyone knows it. <laughs> That's kind yeah. of his personality trait. I, I bring up Burgo because I, too, love garlic so much. And uh, I will... I will eat garlic just for everything if I can. I love roasted garlic. I um, Famously, there was a story that I had um, a garlic bagel with garlic cream cheese one day. And the smell of all of that garlic was so potent that it was like almost coming off of me <laughs> like in my sweat. Um, so I just feel a real kinship to Burgo and I found every time Burgo showed up, I had completely forgotten that he was in the book, but he would start talking about how much he loves that garlic and I would just cut up every time he showed up. So I wanted to give him a special shout out because I think he's just a great little side character. I kind of feel the same about uh, Tree Rose where Tree Rose, you know, she definitely was more of a background character in uh this book but i love the kind of subplot of her trying to uh woo uh roof brush how she's trying to like make him a pie or cake or something and he outright rejects it and she's kind of heartbroken and embarrassed and um <laughs> it's just kind of a funny moment and then we we later see that she marries oak tom right so she yeah. you know found love eventually but that whole kind of dynamic of um having the feast and trying to woo him and him being really embarrassed about it uh, it was a very comical moment. Yeah. 
And then I think my last forgotten friend I want to remember is this trio of Bag, Run, and Grub, uh, the Dibbins that <laughs> go on a chopping spree. <laughs> yeah, they commit the war crimes of this book. They're, uh, I was kind of waiting for them to say, and, you know, one of them had a child that was cornflower <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> lit up the whole tower. But, I mean, that wouldn't work because cornflower's a mouse and they're, uh, they're moles, right? Uh, 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 yeah, moles and, and a hedgehog, or no, two and otters and a, and a mole, I think. That's right, that's right, yeah. So I uh, wouldn't have worked there with the different creatures, but um, the same kind of spirit, right? The the war crime yeah. spirit exists with them as it did with corn, with uh, Cornflower. Yeah, they're kind of the um, Ferdian cogs of this book, and I I think that's going to be more of a trope. You know, you, you're going to get your rascally divins, um, but I, I just found myself loving these silly little dibbins more and more as they showed up through the story. And I felt like I felt like I didn't give them nearly enough space in my notes um, about the book to really express how much I love them, you know, through the course of this book. Well, I think that brings our story to a close that is the end of book three and the end of mariel of redwall yeah i can't believe it we're at the end of mariel of redwall but that's not the end of this season because we have our big review episode that's gonna be our next episode and that's always super fun because we have our our great panel of contributors uh, myself trevor uh, we also have Tiff and William, and we're going to be talking about some of the things that we loved about this book, some of the criticisms, and then we're going to give our official scores, which is always really fun to kind of see where everyone's at. So be sure to check into that episode as we wrap up season four. Um, if you want to support the show, the best way you could do that is through um, just leaving a review wherever you're listening to this. Um, sharing, sharing it with a friend is also a great way to help grow our audience and just kind of grow this community that we're, we're building around Redwall. Um, if you uh, want to follow us on threads or Instagram, you can at books in badgers. Uh, that's with an N between books and badgers. Uh, we try to do some fun things like things on Instagram, like questions or polls. Um, then you can also send us any questions that you may have. So you can just direct message us there. Or if you want to send us an email, you can do that at books badgers at gmail.com. Uh, again, books with an N badgers at gmail.com. Uh, send us any questions that you may have. And we'd love to do a question episode. So we're kind of building up some questions from previous seasons in order to make a big bash of that episode. And if you like Trevor's voice, uh, you can check him out at Slayhouse Presents. Uh, you're doing lots of really cool interviews over there. If you've got some pretty cool stuff coming up. Yeah, the I think the month of February is going to be packed because I've got a whole bunch of different episodes that are dropping. Uh, starting just very soon, we're going to have Sunny Morain on the show, a horror writer, to talk about their new novella, Your Shadow Half Remains. And then later in the month, I'm joined by S.E. Porter, a dark fantasy writer whose new book, Projections, is coming out on February 13th. And then I'm also joined by L.P. Hernandez, another horror writer who has a novella coming out on February 13th. And Gwendolyn Keist, late in the month, talking about her new novel, The Haunting of Velkwood, which is one of the most unique ghost stories I've read in a long time. So very exciting guests, and uh, I think it's going to be a good time. 
That's awesome to hear. Uh, Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and be sure to join us in our next episode for that big review, and we'll catch you in the next one. Bye.